Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyoti Gamaya Mrityormam Amritam Gamaya Avir Avir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshina Mukha Te Namaha Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. <clears throat> well, my subject this morning is... It's quiet in here, huh? My subject is the quest for the Holy Grail. And I'm taking my title from a great classic of Arthurian literature written by a Cistercian monk in the 13th century. Several new translations of that work, originally in French, have now uh, appeared. title is The Quest for the Holy Grail, and it's a story that's written in the garb of, of a romantic novel. It takes place far away, long ago. It features kings and queens and knights and ladies, evil sorcerers and dragons, but all of the the typical romance motifs in the quest are metaphors and allegories and symbolic representations of great spiritual ideals. And as a result, the quest is primarily a spiritual fable that's written to dramatize the adventure of spiritual life. The characters mirror aspects of ourselves. And in reading the story, we can see an allegory for our, for our own inner quest. The whole of our spiritual life can really be described as an inner quest that is a kind of adventure, an adventurous expedition that is what the American mythologist Joseph Campbell called the heroic journey. This journey may be said to have, in general, seven stages. That is the call to adventure, the great departure, the initiation, the acquisition of heavenly virtues, trials and temptations, the apotheosis, and the great return. 
and all of these stages are very beautifully symbolically represented for us in the legend of the Holy Grail. The story begins in Camelot. That is a legendary utopia of the Middle Ages. It was a spectacular world of knights and ladies, of benevolent rulers and happy peasants. It was a land of prosperity. It was like a heaven on earth. It was a paradise. It was like a paradise on earth. But as the story opens, there's trouble in paradise. And we soon learn that King Arthur is wounded. He has fallen in battle. He's been brought back to the castle, but he's, he's weakened. He's ill. He's lost his vital powers. The kingdom itself is in the throes of a seven-year drought. Now, there's no rain. Uh, there's no graining out of the fields. There's no growth. There's famine in the land. And people are hungry and thirsty. In fact, the whole of the kingdom is reduced to a wasteland. And as we read, we soon understand that the physical wasteland without symbolizes the moral wasteland within us before the awakening of spiritual consciousness. That is, at that time, we in our own mind and heart feel an inner emptiness, a kind of a barrenness, a, that is, we, we cannot find any inner source of happiness and joy and growth. We're not prospering. We're not happy. And we hunger and thirst for some meaning and for some substance and for some significance in our life. This is our condition. This both individually and collectively in the whole of the Western world that is in the collective consciousness of the, of the postmodern world finds itself lost in a moral and spiritual wasteland. This condition was expressed in a famous poem, perhaps the most famous poem in the 20th century, written by T.S. Eliot, entitled The Wasteland. And there we can see, well, the students of Vedanta were, were familiar with that poem because uh, the whole structure is based on Indian concepts of the five elements. It uses, he, he, at the end of the poem, he uses the shanti, shanti, shanti. He uses Sanskrit words in the poem. So we're kind of interested in the, some of the vocabulary of that famous uh, poem. But uh, more importantly, the theme is all about discusses this moral wasteland within, and in fact, postmodern writers still refer to the imagery um, of that poem by T.S. Eliot. Well, this is just the setting. That is, the stage is set for the opening of the curtain on the, the first stage 
of the quest narrative. All mythic literature, as our does our own personal life, our spiritual life, begins with a call to adventure. And as the story opens, all of the knights are seated at the round table, and we're familiar with Sir Lancelot, Sir Percival, Sir Galahad, and King Arthur. And they've all taken their, their seat at the round table when the grail appears. Now, as you know, the Holy Grail was a chalice. That is, it was like a cup. Well, there's a lot of controversy of whether it was a cup or a plate or a dish. <laughs> but for our purposes, it was like a, a, a beautiful cup that held the wine during the Passover feast of the Last Supper. And, uh, well, that's in ancient history now. But uh, because that grail is still considered to be in existence, and therefore it's kind of would be if we could find such a, such a sacred object, in fact, it would be the last great relic that's symbolic of the communion uh, experience of the Last Supper. In fact, the Holy Grail symbolizes spiritual or mystical experiences. It symbolizes the communion with the Christ consciousness within. And it's the image or metaphor for what in, in the tradition of Vedanta we would call God-realization or self-knowledge. According to the Vedanta philosophy, all of our life is a quest for the communion experience with the Christ consciousness within. Our life is a quest for self-knowledge, for God-realization, for enlightenment, for contentment, for the peace that passeth all understanding. That's our goal. That's our quest. And so we too are in search of the Holy Grail. Well, the apparition, that is the vision, that they all, it's a, like, it's a collective vision, reminds them, all of the knights, that is the knights kind of symbolize spiritual aspirants. And here they've come to sit down at a great feast of material uh, wealth, and yet here a great vision appears before them, reminding them of their spiritual uh, purpose, making them aware that they have a great calling, and that is to search out and to find the grail. The grail is the promise, the, the answer to the, to the problems of the, uh, uh, in, the, in the kingdom. And if they could find the grail and return it uh, to its rightful place, then the um, the kingdom will, will be returned to prosperity. So it's the call to adventure. You remember how in the Christian Bible, Jesus of Nazareth was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and there he saw two brethren, 
Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting nets into um, the, the Sea of Galilee because they were fishers and they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is, they heard the call to adventure. In um, some of the some of the senior swamis in this uh, order often tell the story of a saint of modern Bengal. His name was Lala Babu. He was a he was a successful businessman in Calcutta, and um, and he came to uh, uh, his spiritual life at a at a rather advanced age, but he had a conversion experience. That is, one day on his way home from the office, he was walking through the village. Well, this was like in the year 1910 or 12. So it's still the rural village as he's walking home to his village. And uh, there he heard, the well, it was, it was evening, the sun was setting, and he was walking by the river Ganges, and there was a, a, a village, a colony of, uh, of washermen who lived by that, by that river. And he heard one of the daughters of the washermen say, Father, it's getting late. The sun is setting. It's time to burn the vasanas. Now, Sanskrit, well, Sanskrit words, play on words there. Sanskrit, the Sanskrit word vasana, of course, it means... Well, in Sanskrit, it refers to kind of the the the, the pith of the of, of the banana, the plantain tree, which is burned. That is, if you get ash, you know how they make soap. You know, in ancient times, you could you put you put uh, soap plus animal uh, ashes plus animal fat is it makes soap. So if you put so ashes are used to make soap. So they needed to have that ash. So the little girl was it's getting late. We don't have any of these ashes to make the soap. Uh, to wash the clothes. Well, the word vasana also, of course, means the samskaras in our mind. That is the impressions in our psyche, which, for, which is the cause of our, the, the seed cause of our desires, that the, the essential link that catches us in the vicious circle of karma, which prompt us to act with desire and passion, kind of compel us from within. Those are the vasanas, the tendencies, the, the worldly tendencies that we have within us. And Lala Babu, when he heard the girl, he immediately flashed on that meaning of the word vasana, and he thought, yes, I'm growing old. Isn't the sun is setting on my life? It's time for me to work, on, do some inner work, and uh, to burn away those, those evil tendencies that I have within myself. And so, um, Lala Babu, he heard the call to adventure, and uh, he heeded that call, and he became a... Um, a, a, a saint of modern Bengal. Well, Lala Babu, he, he heeded the call, but many of us, many times, people do not heed the call. But in the beautiful story here, the quest, these the great, um, the knights, they realized that they had a great goal. And so uh, the very, uh, in the very next morning, they, with great, 
fanfarinade and great uh, celebration, they all rode off from Camelot. And we can visualize the knights. That is symbolic of the spiritual aspirants. Uh, the knights in shining armor uh, riding off and the, the, the ladies remaining behind in the castle. They're waving their, um, their scarves and as, the, as the, um, the mounted knights ride off, the, well, the symbolism there, the, the knight is like the, is like the soul or like the self. The body is like the horse. And uh, one has to gain control over mind and heart and the, and the physical uh, uh, tendencies in order to begin this quest. So the knights rode off. They, uh, they left the, um, uh, the... See, now here we're moving in the second stage. It's called the Great Departure. That is, they left the old familiar city. Uh, they were going to make, they had to make a new beginning. And uh, because we understand that this story is an allegory for our own spiritual life, we understand that the time comes after the awakening of spiritual consciousness when we have to make a new beginning. When we have to... Uh, you know, like the like the uh, like the new year, we have to ring out the old, and we have to ring in the new. We have to turn away from materialistic values and from this material external world of the senses and our worldly ways, and to begin a new life that is an interior life, and to begin the journey within. So, uh, so the knights, in that spirit, they rode off leaving behind the old world into the new world. And what was the new world? It was the deep, dark, perilous forest. And so the knights rode into the perilous forest with its evil castles, its abandoned chapels and graveyards, steep mountains, dark valleys, tumultuous rivers, and rocky shores and and lions and tigers and dragons well of course the forest well the forest in jungian psychology of course symbolizes the unconscious that's where all the wild things are in the unconscious and we have to confront our unconscious um life to integrate our, our, our mind and heart. In Indian philosophy, the, uh, uh, the, in the Viveka Chudamani, it uses a different metaphor for the forest where Shankara says, Mano nama bhavagro vishayaranyabhumishu. That is, in Indian philosophy, they're not talking about the forest as symbolic of the unconscious, but as symbolic of the world of the senses. And in that verse of Shankaracharya, it says, in the forest of the senses, there dwells a great tiger called the mind. Well, a similar, similar metaphor, that is, that um, just as the knights will encounter in the perilous forest, um, uh, 
terrible beasts and dragons and evil sorcerers. Similarly, we too, in our journey through this world of the senses, that is the external world, uh, and in our own inner quest, we need to deal with the, the mind and the ego and the, our evil tendencies. Well, the, uh, so they journey the great, the great Departure, and they, they move into the forest. Um, and immediately they began to transition into the third great stage of this inner quest, that is uh, the process of initiation into the spiritual life. The knights, as you know, were <coughs> skilled in the worldly arts of war. Uh, but they very soon realized that in order to be successful in the inner warfare, uh, they needed some new esoteric knowledge, that they were unskilled, they were unschooled in understanding how to fight this new battle. Well, maybe you have to integrate in your own minds whether you, uh, you can relate to this concept, which is a traditional, um, typical concept that comes to us really out of Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, maybe not so much out of the Indian uh, Vedantic tradition of warfare, inner warfare, that somehow there will be a battle between the mind and the heart, that, they're, that, they're, that the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other, say. Well, you, you have to you integrate that in your mind. But there's a great spiritual truth. Sometimes we hear, for example, that we are the body, the mind, and the spirit, that these are all aspects of ourselves, and that therefore there's no, uh, uh, there, there, there should be no warfare, there should be harmony, there should be balance, say. But... Um, According to this theme, uh, we can call it a, a theme of, of, of Judeo-Christian uh, fundamentalism, uh, but also, actually, a, a true theme of this tr Orthodox Indian Vedantic tradition also. Because we don't believe that you are the body, mind, and spirit. We only believe you're the spirit. That's all. You're not the body. You're not the mind, and insofar as though, insofar as the body and mind oppose the spirit, that is your enemy. That is that is a that is a, the the what you have to overcome. That's the dragon that you have to slay, in order to um, re-own your own spiritual self. So. Uh, well, first of all, then, they realized they needed esoteric knowledge. And, and lo and behold, what do they encounter? Well, it was written by a Cistercian monk. So we can understand that, well, they come upon a great monastery uh, of Cistercian monks <clears throat> who, in fact, there give them hospitality and uh, soon instruct them in prayer and meditation and spiritual practice. As you know, uh, initiation is a rite of passage that marks the crossing here of the first threshold in the spiritual journey. In this Indian Vedantic tradition, uh, 
uh, it, it is considered that initiate, that is this right of initiation is important and is essential for you to begin your, for, formally begin your journey. That is, you need to find a spiritual teacher, a guru who will look into your mind and heart, who will instruct you as to what is your path, who will light your candle. You can't light your own candle. You have to find a teacher who will light your candle. That is a real living teacher in this life uh, who will initiate you into spiritual life. That's one of the traditional teachings of the Vedanta philosophy. You see if you believe it or not. Yeah? You, if you can't integrate that in your own uh, mind, then maybe that's, you can think about that as whether you believe it or not. Um, but the, the, the knights in shining armor, they soon found themselves uh, living there in that forest hermitage with the, with, with the monks of the, um, who, who instructed them in prayer and meditation. And they began then to do inner practice. And just as before, back in the, in the old world in Camelot, they spent days in practicing their... Um, uh, secular warfare skills, now they began to do inner practice. And uh, their purpose, the purpose uh, of such practice is to begin to acquire heavenly virtues. So here we move into the next stage. You see the whole thing, is a, it's, a gra- it's a cycle. It's a great cycle of story. And just as, uh, just as the, the, the washing machine is going, it has to go through all the cycles, round one by one, it clicks through. So similarly, after initiation, now their quest is to find and to acquire those virtues, that is, those inner strengths, which will enable them to be successful. They've responded and heeded the call of adventure. They have made the great departure. They've taken initiation and uh, now they have to perfect themselves in the spiritual virtues. Well, the author of the, um, of the quest, in several chapters, distinguishes very nicely and helpfully for us between secular and spiritual virtues. That is, we know there are certain secular virtues which... Uh, Uh, you all have. That is, we learn to be a good Boy Scout is helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, all those virtues. Those are kind of like secular virtues. Those are virtues that we need in order to be successful in life. But apart from that, we can discriminate um, from the secular virtues, well, we can also discriminate moral and spiritual virtues. That is, usually we, we, we are considered, in study of religion, we talk about moral virtues. That is, those things with the, that may be listed, like in the Ten Commandments, all the things that we ought not to do, whereas the spiritual virtues, we could say, are more positive that is the things that we, that those character traits that we need to acquire. 
and that we will acquire as we identify more and more with our true self, that is the qualities of purity, humility, faith, uh, hope, charity. And of course, the supreme Christian virtue, which is emphasized in this work, is that of humility. And um, as we read, we can sympathize with the grail knights as they struggle to acquire all of the heavenly virtues, but in particular, this virtue of humility, because as you know, these were the greatest warriors of the, uh, of the kingdom of Camelot. They were masters, and now they had to learn to be disciples. They left as teachers of men. Now they had to learn to be students. And they left as great warriors. And now they had to learn to uh, seek out inner peace and self-surrender. So, well, and you can read for yourself how each night, well, they they don't, they started with like 27 nights, but they don't talk about all of them. Maybe they talk about somehow Sir Galahad and Sir Lancelot and Sir Percival, how they, each one, struggled with the, his own inner demons in order to acquire the, the spiritual virtues. And, uh, well, having begun to, to become established in spiritual life, um, they soon found themselves, that is, they began to move away, to leave the, 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 the convent or the monastery of the Cistercian monks and transition into the next stage of the great grail quest, that is the cycle of story, that is, they, uh, they be- continued their journey on the road of trials and tribulations. Part of the journey, that is part of our journey, because the story that we're discussing this morning, uh, I don't want to just give you a book report this morning. <laughs> the idea is, is that it's an, this is an allegory for our own journey, that all of the stages in the, in the quest are stages in our life, and it's good and helpful for us to identify this, those stages and to clearly understand where we are in the cor- course of our own inner quest. Part of this quest, part of the perilous journey, involves trials and tribulations. That is, the the knights are tempted by the devil and tested by God. The white knights encounter black knights, evil sorcerers, sirens, temptations, uh, damsels in distress, wild beasts, dragons, all of which are symbolic and allegorical of our own uh, of our own tendencies within which need to be overcome. All of them represent tests of virtue. And the question is, can they pass the test? For example, <clears throat> Sir Percival is on the um, He's going along the road of trials and tribulations, and there he meets a beautiful woman, 
the beautiful woman lures him into her tent. He's invited to wine and dine, to eat and to drink. But before he can lose his chastity and virtues, he remembers God. And he makes the sign of the cross. And the woman disappears with a shriek and a cloud of black smoke. And he realizes that he has been tempted by the devil. So, I don't know if you like that analogy, if you like that. But, uh, well, we can understand the symbolic significance. We can understand it as we read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, where on every page he warns us about the temptations of woman and gold. That is, these are all metaphors. They're symbolic representations of the deep, of deeper tendencies and animal passions within us, which we need to overcome in order to identify with our soul, our spirit. This is the road of trials and tribulations. All of the nights are tested. And you remember there's an old... uh, I saw long, long ago, there's an old Walt Disney movie. Maybe some of you have seen that. It's kind of a fantasy film for children. It was entitled The Never-Ending Story. Well, that's kind of a, that uses a lot, employs a lot of the motifs that we're talking about today because as the, as the young hero of that story uh, goes in quest of his, on his own personal quest, uh, to to save the kingdom from the nothingness, he comes in the course of his journey to uh, uh, two gates. That is, he has to reach the southern oracle. But he too has to. He's on the road of trials and tribulations. He has to pass through two gates. One of those gates, and one of those gates is guarded by the great Sphinx. And the Sphinx looks as the as the hero comes and cro- uh, seeks to cross through the gate, the Sphinx looks into his mind and his heart to see um, if he has a feeling of self-worth, um, to see if he, if, if he feels good about himself. If not, then he will be stopped. He can't pass through the gate. Well, the young hero passes through that gate. Soon he comes to another the magic mirror gate, that is, as he comes to pass through, he sees himself in reflection. That is, everyone on the journey has to confront their own true self. And all of the journeyers, as they come, they see that mirror, and in the mirror is reflected, that is, the, the image of who they really are. And uh, most people turn around and they run away <laughs> uh, in fright and in terror, unable to, to uh, confront their true uh, nature. But uh, the young hero in the story, he passes that test also. And so he reaches the uh, southern oracle. So the road of trials and, uh, and tribulations, that is, in the course of our spiritual life, uh, once we've begun to do spiritual practice and we begin to acquire virtues, at every step in our life, we will find ourselves at a crossroads. And as it says in the Upanishads, every moment we say, Shreyascha, Prayascha, 
Manushum etastao, that means every day that we're confronted, every moment of our lives, really, we're, we're at a crossroads. We have to choose. That is, we're tested. Are we going to take the right path or the wrong path? Are we going to take the good or the pleasant? We have a choice. And so we're constantly being tested and tried. And, uh, well, that's how gold is purified. It has to be tried. That is, the, the, the ore has to be tried in fire and burnt until it becomes purified. And so, uh, and so we have to travel like, as, the, as the grail knights did that road um, of trials. So uh, having, so you can read the stories there of how, you see, all the, a lot of the great literature of, of, of the spiritual life, um, you, maybe you've, you've certainly you've, you've heard about the classic of the, of, of the um, Eastern Orthodox um, religion called uh, the, the Way of a Pilgrim. That's also it's kind of a story of the it's story or the or the great classic by John Bunyan, A Pilgrim's Progress. You see, it's all part of the same kind of imagery and allegory of our life as a quest, as a journey. And um, along the way, we will have the same experiences as the pilgrim, as the knights of the Round Table. And uh, so that, therefore, it's helpful for us to, to read such spiritual uh, books because maybe it, will, it helps us to identify, because we identify with the characters and we see our own problems represented metaphorically, that is, more concretely and more that crystallize and clarify our own uh, journey. Well, the author of the quest... Uh, so the story continues, and the author of the quest devotes several uh, chapters to describing the ultimate triumph of the knights. That is the goal that they are in that which they are in, in search of. <clears throat> that is, this is a, they're on an expedition. They're in search of something. They are they're in, but in this story they're not seeking for the. Uh, the, the 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 seven cities of gold, or they're not they're not seeking for the the lost fountain of youth, they're not seeking for the lost city of Shangri La. Here they're seeking for the Holy Grail, and in the end they find the location of the Grail that is in the castle of Corbenic. And uh, well, at this point it's interesting to consider that uh, out of all of those knights that began the, the quest, that is, there were, they were uh, no, there were more than 20, there were, there were like 52 of those knights. They all set out, but in the end, when they come into view of the castle, which where the grail is located, there's only three of them left. That is, they've all perished by the wayside, one by one. And, uh, <coughs> well, that kind of reminds us, there's a famous verse in the Bhagavad Gita, Manushyanam sahasreshu kashchid yatati siddhaye yatatam abhisiddhanam 
Christian mom vedi tattvataha. That's an old, sometimes I quote Sanskrit verses just to show you that this is not a, this is not a new age religion. This, this is the oldest religion in the world. And these old Sanskrit verses are like thousands of years old. So the subject that we're discussing this morning is really a subject that's, that's been discussed many times before in ancient times. And here in the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna takes note of this fact. Uh, he says that among thousands of people, uh, only one person maybe will have an awakening of spiritual consciousness. And of those who have an awakening of spiritual consciousness, of a, of a thousand of those people, maybe only one will finally attain uh, self-knowledge. So here we see that out of 52 nights, only three have attained it. Of course, Sri Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, I think, is a little optimistic in his regard because uh, he says one in a thousand uh, um, and one in a thousand makes it. Okay, well, that's one in a thousand times a thousand. That's like one in a million makes it. But in the United States today, maybe we have 400 million. That means that there's 400 saints in the United States. I don't think so. So, in fact, Swami Vivekananda, in one letter to one of his uh, brother disciples, he very clearly states his conviction that at any time on the earth, there's only four or five great realized souls. And of those four or five, two or three are going to be sequestered, hidden in caves in the Himalayas, and you're never going to meet them. So, good luck. So, there's a story here. We get a reality check about uh, who's going to realize the Holy Grail. And, uh, well, they reach the castle of Corbenic, and there they go through the castle. The castle, of course, is itself very heavy symbolism of the, of, of the journey and the different levels of the, the, the St. Teresa. You remember the, Saint, the classic by St. Teresa of Avila, the interior castle. And so they journey through. The, it takes them a long time to move through the castle. Finally, they get to the, to the inner sanctum, and there they uh, see the grail. And there, in fact, they have a vision. That is the three. Have a vision of Christ. That is a vision of the personal God. And they go into an ecstatic state uh, of, uh, of happiness and joy and bliss. And then they have also a vision of the impersonal. It's very Vedantic, the way it's described, because it's a classic of mystical literature. You know, the mystic traditions of all religions share many similar themes. And therefore, if we go and read the, 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 the classics of mysticism of any religion, we can find all the Vedantic themes of which we are very familiar. And therefore, these are the knights. They realize what in our tradition we would call realizing the impersonal. You know, we believe that God is both personal and impersonal, just as we ourselves are personal, impersonal beings. So they realize the personal God and they realize the impersonal, that is, God in everything, God within themselves. And uh, they realize the spirit, their own divine spirit soul. Well, uh, after the final vision, 
uh, at Corbenic. You see, now we're moving through the sixth great stage. That it's called the apotheosis. That means the transformation, where the human becomes the divine. They've realized their own divine selves, and they become saints. They become men of realization. After that final vision, Sir, now there's only three left. Sir Galahad, he continues on in meditation in the castle. That is, he goes into samadhi, and uh, he gives up his body. Sir Percival leaves the castle, but he retires to a monastery in the forest. And he continues to live as a monk who has renounced the world. It's only Sir Bors who returns to King Arthur's court, taking with him, bearing in his, you know, the, 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 the Holy Grail with him. And it's Sir Bors, in fact, that completes the pattern of separation, initiation, and return that's typical of all the great um, stories of the world, that's typical of the story of our life. Separation from our true self, initiation, journey, and return. Um, he's the only one who returned. Well, that's because he was what we would call uh, a vigyani, or in the tradition of Buddhism, he's called like a bodhisattva. You know, Sri Ramakrishna tells one, once upon a time there were three men who were on a, you know, walking along the great highway of life there, and they were walking by a great, they came to a high wall. And uh, one, of the, one of the travelers there, he said, what's, I wonder what this high, what's on the other side of this high wall? So he begins to climb. He's like a mountain climber. You know, he climbs little by little up, grasps it, up to the top of this high wall. He looks over, and a big smile comes over his face. He begins to laugh. He begins to shout with joy. And he scrambles over the top of the wall, and he disappears. And the other two travelers said, what is that? The second, the second man, he said, well, I'm going to find out for myself. So he also climbs difficulty, getting a foothold, handhold. He climbs up this high wall. He looks over, a big smile, a shout of joy. And he jumps over the wall. And the third man, he thought, what happened? And he too begins to climb up the wall little by little. He gets to the top, and there he looks over, and he sees that there's a great mart of joy on the other side. It's a great, wonderful paradise of happiness and joy. But he, thinking, says, well, see, he, he thought, well, you know, I think I, he could have jumped over. He felt like jumping over himself, but he thought, no, you know, I think I'll climb back down here again and tell other people who are coming along this road about this wonderful mart of joy on the other side. And so he, he didn't climb over. He came back and stood there by the wayside and told others about the, um, the happiness uh, on the other side. So he was like a, he was like a bodhisattva, you know, and even in the Buddhist tradition, there are two great images, that is of the arhat and the bodhisattva. The arhat just realizes his own true self and gives up the body. The bodhisattva completes the story and returns. Well, when Sir Bors returns with the Holy Grail, immediately, miraculously, 
King Arthur is healed. And uh, winter departs from the kingdom. The drought disappears. The rain begins to fall. Spring returns. And there's a greening out of the fields. There's great, in other words, the growth begins again. Prosperity returns to the kingdom. That is our whole mind and heart. We are like a little kingdom. And we have our, our, own, our own king of our, of our kingdom. And so on the realization of our true self, that is that we begin to find that we begin to grow and to prosper again in our own life. That is the spiritual life of the kingdom is restored. And we can note here the, the great metaphor of the story, and that is the great cycle of the, um, of the quest. The journey is not linear. We're kind of, we're kind of uh, um, those of us you know, raised in a Western tradition, we're, we're taught to think of progress as being linear, that our journey is like a stairway to heaven. Here we get a different metaphor, a metaphor which is typically Eastern and Indian in its nature. That is, it's a great cycle of return. And in fact, that's the fundamental teaching of this Vedanta philosophy, that um, the whole of the journey uh, is really the quest, the purpose of our life is really to return to where we already are, to return back to the beginning, to return back to where we started again. That is our quest. Om Dio Oshantihi Antariksha Hamshantihi Prithivi Ishantihi Apashantihi Oshadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Sarabham Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantiredhi Om Shantihi 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 Om peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal, universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all.